Galatians chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 5. I'm actually going to start in chapter 5, verse 26 this evening, because we didn't preach that um, last week, and, and we will begin there. Over the past two weeks, we have considered the cure for temptation unto legalism rooted in the Holy Spirit of God. That as we walk in the Spirit, the flesh has no power over us. So as believers, we don't need to feel compelled to submit ourselves to a system, a legalistic system, a system of guilt and a system of debt in order to manipulate ourselves or manipulate our flesh into conforming to some standard of conduct. And this is something that can become a great temptation for us as believers. To erect a set of standards and to be motivated by guilt or by debt. So we don't need to erect a false gospel or a legalistic method of living whereby we are constantly under threat or feelings of debt or guilt in order to manipulate ourselves into doing what is right. And as Christians, we can do this. We can live under constant guilt, under these constant, the constant weight of the fact that we're never matching, we're never living up to what God would have us to do. And so over the past two weeks, we've, we've been learning how to solve that problem. And two weeks ago, we talked about walking in the Spirit and not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. Last week, we talked about how to do that, how to win the battle over the flesh without resorting, without falling into legalism. We find that when we do, when we do fall into that legalism, even though it might make us a better person in the eyes of the world, we are living just as much compelled by the flesh as anyone else in the world. Romans 8 tells us that they that are in the flesh cannot please God, which means that a flesh-driven moralizer is just as displeasing to God as a flesh-driven thief or adulterer. That if we are driven by our flesh into moral actions, it is just as fleshly as if we're driven by our flesh into immoral actions. And that is an important concept for us to understand. Because we can live this life morally clean, but driven by our flesh entirely. Satan is happy to allow us to do moral things. You know, he's fine with that. As long as we aren't walking in the Spirit. The world is happy to allow us to do moral things. As long as we aren't walking in the Spirit. We talked about it last week in our introduction, right? The world loves the fruit of Christianity. The world loves morality. In, in the sense that when we're kind to others and when we, when we are a benefit to society and when we're honest and such, the, the world is fine with that as long as they don't have to hear about the truth. They're fine with the morals as long as we aren't walking in the Spirit. Even your flesh is more than happy to conform itself to a moral lifestyle as long as you aren't denying the flesh by walking in the Spirit. And what you find as you look at the majority of the religious world is that the majority of the religious world are religious people. They are, they are little more than moralizers. They're living by a moral code and they are living in that moral code through discipline, through their flesh, through just denying themselves what is bad, what they perceive as bad, and doing what they perceive as good under this guilt that if they don't, then there's something wrong. Be it Judaism or Islam or Hindi or even the majority of, of Christianity so-called, they view spiritual success as an outworking of moral accomplishment. 
I was talking to a woman in jail a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking Bible. As we talked, it immediately became apparent that her problem with the gospel was that she wanted to be in control. As we talked through the gospel, as we tried to cut through her way of thinking, this is what you have to do with a lot of people. You have to kind of get down to the root of what they are thinking in order to understand where they're coming from. Uh, We finally arrived at her mindset. And her mindset, it's a mindset that's prevalent in jail, and it was this. She said this. She said, I want to learn more about the Bible because I know it can make me a better person. She said, even if I don't believe a lot of it, if it will make me a better person, that's what I want. She has a two-year-old girl. She's a drug addict. She wants to become a better person. She said, so even though I don't believe some of it, I'm I'm willing to listen because I, I want to become a better person. What this woman just expressed is a desire to submit herself to a legal system in order to reform her actions. That's what she wants. She wants some system that is going to make her so guilty that she'll do right. That will... Will, will bring her to a place where she feels compelled to do right. Something that will make her do right with some perceived personal benefit. But that's not what we have in Christ. We have something so much more in Christ. As we described it last week, it's all of the benefits of the legalistic system, which means doing right before God, without the guilt and the debt, without that weight that rests upon us. This is a freedom in Christ. But with this freedom, a freedom which the world cannot know, comes responsibility. A responsibility which the world will not understand. We learn about this responsibility in Galatians chapter 6, and this evening we'll consider the first five verses. Uh, I'm going to begin in Galatians 5, verse 26, where the Bible says, Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, And so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work. And then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. As we begin in Galatians chapter 5, verse 26, we see a little bit of a departure. Paul has just said, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And we saw this great exhortation unto spiritual living. Uh, he gave us the, the manifestations of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. He said, if you're, if, you, if, you are walking, if you're living in the Spirit, if you're a believer, then walk in it. Walk in the Spirit so the fruit of the Spirit can bear itself out in you. And then he, he just changes thoughts a little bit. He kind of changes directions a little as he says, Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. And this is the very root of the legalistic system. The legalistic system says, I am going to do my best to be what I need to be against the law, and it's a guilt system, and it's a, it's a system of debt, but it's also a system that tends to comparing ourselves one with another. I'm okay because at least I'm better than so-and-so in the pew next to me. Well, yeah, I was guilty about that, but now I see so-and-so doing that, and I feel better about what I'm doing. 
And it's a system where we're comparing ourselves and, and we're, we're desiring, oftentimes a legalist desires vainglory. They do what they do to be seen of men so that others look at them and say, wow, look how good you're doing at your checklist. Look how good you're doing at, 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 at your, at, as far as you're concerned. Look, look, look how good you're doing next to the law. And he says, don't be desirous of that vainglory. Don't be desirous of, of that pride. Don't provoke one another. Don't envy one another. This is what had happened. This was what was happening in the Galatian church. They were, they were walking in the flesh. They were living in this legalistic system. Uh, they, they had accepted these Judaizers. They uh, were told that the gospel demands circumcision. And they were constantly judging one another. There was, there was battling with one another about this false teaching. Clearly, there were still people in the church that didn't believe it, that were trying to teach what is right. We'll see that tonight in Galatians chapter 6, because he talks about they who are spiritual those who are walking in the Spirit. And so we know that there were people walking in the Spirit, but there was envy and there was contention and there was provocation and there was people that they were seeking to exalt themselves and exalt others and lifting men up in the word of men. And, and, and this is all kind of the fruit of a legalistic system. I've seen it happen in churches before, or at least little pockets of churches. Perhaps many of us have. And when we see these things, when we see the people desiring vainglory, exalting himself or exalting others, when we see the people provoking one another, comparing themselves to one another, judging one another, gossiping against one another, when we see envying one of another and all of these things that are going on, we know it's flesh. We talked about that last week. It's fleshly. It's carnal. But it's the fruit of a legalistic system. And so legalistic systems tend to collapse under their own weight because of the terrible, angry infighting that happens. And so he says in verse 1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, chapter 6, verse 1, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Do you see the interesting contrast between this legalistic system, the provoking and the envying, and the vainglory? And then he says, when, this, when, when it's time to restore one who's been overtaken in a fault, restore him with meekness, with humility, considering yourself also. The words within this command are very important, so we're going to park on them for a few minutes. Recall, first of all, the context that Paul is speaking to churches who are at a crossroads here. They have been deceived. They've been deceived by Judaizing false teachers. Paul is calling them back to the truth of God's word in a very direct manner here. And Paul stated in Galatians chapter 5 verse 10 that he has every confidence in them. He said that in Galatians 5. He said, I have every confidence in you that you will realign yourself with the truth of God's word, that you will reject this legalism that is encroaching upon you and encroaching into your midst and that you will accept, that you will follow this correction into truth. And if all of this happens, if the church is about to be a place where men who had been wholly deceived will need to be brought back under the authority of the truth, where men who had been taken in a fault will now need to be brought back under truth, well, what's this going to mean? This is going to mean repentance. This is going to mean humility and anytime there are divisions surrounding doctrinal issues, there's a chance that pride and vindictive attitudes can override grace and forgiveness. A 
told you so attitude. You know how sometimes that happens among our children? Where one of the, ch the children are fighting over something and someone goes to mom or dad and says, Dad, what did you actually say? And you tell them, and then, I told you so, right? A and instead of the correction being done in grace and in, in love, it's kind of like, ha, right? I'm right, you're wrong. I told you so. I win, you lose. And there's that same temptation over those that had gone into doctrinal error as they're working their way back out. Those who were not taken in by false teaching in a natural sense of being vindicated might be tempted to refuse restoration to those who were taken in by this false teaching. So Paul speaks to a scenario where a man in the church has been overtaken in a fault. The word fault in the original languages carries the idea of a slip or an error. The word is a rather generalized word. It seems more to indicate a lapse in judgment than it does a willful rebellion. He's not speaking toward the false teacher here. Do you remember what he said about the false teacher in Galatians 5? He said, I were that this man were even cut off, which troubles you. And he used that interesting wordplay where this man, this false teacher, was encouraging them to get circumcised. And then he says, I wish he were cut out of the body. I wish he were the part that was circumcised from the body, that he were cut off. He says that man needs to be sent out of the church, the false teacher. But, but then you've got the mess, right? You've got the, the mess to clean up after this false teacher is removed. And this would very likely be the case with all but a very few who had fallen into this legalistic behavior. It isn't that they intentionally sought to misrepresent God's word or knowingly rebelled against what they knew God expected. They were led astray through lack of care or concern or perhaps lack of discernment on their part. So within the context, and this is important to understand, Paul is not giving the prescription of restoration for the false teacher. Okay? The false teacher was to be cut off. He knew what he was doing. And until he, sh of course, until he, he would bear some repentance, he needed to be removed. We saw Paul command that, as I mentioned, in Galatians chapter 5. We speak tonight of those who had been led astray, those who are now in a place of spiritual vulnerability because they realize that they have fallen into error. And that puts us in a very humbling and very vulnerable place. And Paul tells them that, he should, that they should be treated with utmost love, care, and concern. He gives this command. Ye which are spiritual, to the spiritual ones... This word is found 21 times in the New Testament. 11 of those are in 1 Corinthians. We've studied through 1 Corinthians. And it's important because remember, in the context of 1 Corinthians, this word is, is used actually to speak of the spiritual gifts which are distributed to the believers in Christ. If you notice in our King James Bibles, when you look at the places where the spiritual gifts are talked about, gifts is in italics, right? And what we know about the King James Version is when we see words in italics, it is reflecting a word that does not have a Greek equivalent in the text. So in the, the Greek text, the word gifts is not there. The King James translators put that word into the text to help us understand what they believe the Bible is talking about. And quite, in, in almost every circumstance, their, their additions are very appropriate. They are, are excellent for helping us understand what the text is saying. But they put it in italics because they want you to know that they added that word. That it's not in the originals. And so, 
technically, when we see this word in 1 Corinthians, it is concerning that which is spiritual. (laughs) Concerning the spiritual things. The word is used to speak of spiritual gifts, but the word is also used to speak of evil spirits in the scripture. And because we know this word is also used to speak of evil spirits in the scripture, we must understand this word more generally. And generally to mean things that pertain unto the spirit, or things that pertain unto the spirit realm. Within the context of the book of Galatians, Paul would very likely consider the spiritual ones to be those that reflected the teaching of Galatians 5, right? 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Paul says this is what it is to walk in the Spirit, and there's little doubt in my mind that as he's referencing the spiritual, he's talking to those who are walking in the Spirit, who are not walking in the flesh. In other words, those who were not led astray by this error but maintained a loyalty to the truth of God's word as they submitted themselves to the discernment sourced in the leading of the Spirit of God. Paul says, to you that were not taken in, to you that are now the ones who who don't need restoration, to you that aren't in this place of spiritual vulnerability because you realize you have been taken in by error. Those who are spiritual, Paul says, are obligated by God to restore the faith and spiritual walk of those who have been taken in a fault, those who are not. Those who are spiritual bear the spiritual burden of uplifting and upholding those who have been overtaken until such time as they can confidently walk in the Spirit once again upon their own. And it's our privilege, it's the privilege of those who are walking in the Spirit to uphold them and to protect them until such time as they can find their spiritual footing. Now stay with me here. Remember what we have been talking about over the past several weeks. If the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, and the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance, the first one of those being love, right? The law is fulfilled in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Paul is speaking to those who were not led astray. Those who have been contending for the letter of the law are not in command of the church. And Paul tells them, good job for walking in the Spirit. Good job for maintaining your discernment. Good job for doing what is right. But now your job has just begun. Now that the error is being corrected, it's time for your actions to back up your words. It's time for you who have asserted that the law has been fulfilled, that we don't need to live under the condemnation and the guilt of the law, that we don't need to to fall back upon Judaizing ways. It's time for you to live it. It's time for you to show some love to those who are in need right now, to the very ones who might have been fighting you last week, to the very ones who might have been contending against you last week, to the very ones who were following this false teacher in his error, it's time for you to love them, to restore them. Now, one of the other listed attributes of the fruit of the Spirit is meekness. And as we spoke of meekness last week, we defined it as strength under control. The world thinks of meekness and they immediately associate it with 
weakness. But meekness is not just rolling over and allowing people to walk all over you. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is when you harness your capacity, harness your strength, harness what you have, and you point it in a direction that best pleases God and best serves others. As the spiritual restore those who were overtaken in a fault, the spirit with which this restoration takes place, Paul says, should be a spirit of meekness. Now the important concept here is that, as we mentioned before, there can be a tendency in the human heart to be extremely judgmental and entertain feelings of superiority over those who have spiritually faltered or failed. But superiority or judgmentalism should be the last thing on our minds when we're dealing in spiritual restoration. As a matter of fact, spiritual restoration, as Paul presents it, should not be an occasion to gloat or an occasion, as he said, to be desirous of vainglory. It should be an occasion of fear and trembling because it could have just as easily been us. could have just as easily been you. Could have just as easily been me. When you see a believer fall into error, you're considering something that could happen to any one of us. There's no one above the danger of falling into false doctrine. There's no one free from the possibility of spiritual failure. And when you see spiritual failure, it should not cause you to gloat or to say, phew, glad that's not me. It should cause you to humbly fear the very real real possibility that were it not for the grace of God, you'd be there as well. And it could happen to you. And notice the important change we find here in the person. Look at this verse if you've got your King James Bible out. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, what's the pronoun? Ye, which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering now what's the pronoun? thyself. Do you remember what we've talked about, about our King James Bible and those two pronouns? When you see a ye, a your, or a you, we're talking second person plural, speaking to a group. When you see thee, or thou, or thy, we're talking second person singular, talking to one person. Notice how Paul zeroes in on each individual. He says, ye which are spiritual, this group, restore him, but ye which are spiritual, consider thyself. Not Don't consider your group. Your group of spiritual ones, we could fall. Consider you. You could fall. You could be the one. You could have been the one. I love that about the King James Bible. You can see that transition right there. You don't have to dig into the Greek to find it. It's right there accessible to you because of the way they translated this. Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Paul says, each one of you, consider thyself, because you also can be tempted. It could happen to any one of us. It could happen to you. And the connection we have already made is explicitly stated in verse 2. He says, bear ye. Now we're back to ye, so we're talking to the group of spiritual ones again. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. To bear one another's burdens... 
This is what it means to fulfill the law of Christ. This is what it means to love thy neighbor as thyself. In Christ, we fulfill the law of Moses. In Christ, the law is fulfilled in us. So we don't have to spend our time worrying about the letter of the law. Uh, We don't have to spend our time wallowing under the condemnation and the guilt of, of falling short of some standard. And so all is fulfilled when we love one another by bearing each other's Burdens. I don't have to worry about comparing myself to them and saying, wow, I'm so glad I'm better than them, because it's not about that. that uh, whether, whether it's them or whether it's us, the law has been fulfilled in Christ, so it's not about that. It's about their spiritual life, and it's about the need to restore them. And I can focus on that, because we're not in some le- false, guilt-driven, debt-driven, legalistic system. We live in a Christian world today that is fiercely independent, driven by a mutual unwillingness to be accountable to one another, but also uh, we find a, a pretty extreme spiritual laziness. We want what we want, and the last thing we want to do is be spiritually inconvenienced by high maintenance believers. We want our Christian associates to be as spiritually self-reliant as we are and resent those who seem kind of slow to catch on to things. We don't want to be bothered by having to take someone's hand and lead them in their spiritual growth. You can figure, just, just read this passage of scripture, you'll be fine. Well, what if they need more than that? What if they need more than you to point them to Romans 8.28 and assure them that all things work together for good? What, what, if, what if they need you to labor with them in prayer? What if they need to be able to call you at any time, day or night, and ask you a question about some theological issue they're struggling with? What if they need you to take them by the hand and to guide them through some treacherous doctrinal waters? What if they need you to be on your knees when they don't even know? Begging God for their protection and for their growth. We don't want to take the time to patiently help others through their difficulties, and as we exhibit this spiritual selfishness, what we are doing is denying the law of Christ. To love one another. Now, I'm broad brushing here, right? I'm not condemning or, or, uh, or saying that you all have that spiritual laziness in you. But I'm saying, cult- I'm saying this. I know me. I know me. And the last thing you want to do when you've had a long day at work and you're resting for the night is to have to think about someone else's spiritual problems. But what if they need it? And what if someone had been as lazy with you as you're trying to be with them? The scriptures are full of commands that reflect the principles that your spiritual freedom in Christ is meant to be directed toward blessing the family of Christ. In Romans 14, we find the explicit command that we as believers are to operate in our Christian liberty bound by the conscience of our brother. That's a tough one for American Christians, right? That I have liberty in Christ, but I am literally bound by the conscience of my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in my actions. Romans 14 says that. In it, Paul teaches that even if you have the freedom to do something in Christ... If by doing it you will harm the faith of a brother in Christ or cause them to offend their conscience by doing something they think is wrong, then you have sinned against God. The entire tenor of Paul's words is that regardless of your real or perceived freedoms in Christ, you ought to operate within the bounds of your brother's faith as much as your own faith. 
And in Paul's conclusion, we find this, Romans chapter 15, verse 1. He says, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Do you see what Paul did at the end of Romans 14? He says, bind your actions to your brother's conscience. If your brother is weak in the faith, then you need to be careful with him. Because whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And if you lead your brother to do something that is not of faith, that he can't do in faith then you are leading him into sin. Even if you know that, you, that he could do that thing in right conscience before God, because he is doing it out of right conscience before God, he's sinning, right? If I thought that brown socks were sin, you'd look at me and say, okay, pastor, that's, that's really interesting. But if I was legitimately convinced that by wearing brown socks, I would be sinning against God, and you convinced me to wear brown socks. And I, as I'm putting those brown socks on, my conscience is smiting me. And I put those brown socks on, fully convinced that by doing so, I'm sinning against God. Well, you all know that, according to the Word of God, I didn't sin. But do you know what I just did? I just did something that I thought was sin. Which means, in my heart, what is my attitude? Rebellion, right? My, my heart has rebellion in it if I, am do some, if I am doing something I think is wrong. Knowingly doing something that I honestly think is wrong, then whether or not the action itself is wrong, my heart is wrong because I am doing something I think is wrong. That's rebellion against God. And so I have sinned, not because the action is wrong, but because the heart is wrong. The Bible says if you lead your brother into actions that he believes are wrong and you have encouraged him to go against his conscience, then you have encouraged a heart of rebellion in him. And so this is where we see Paul say in Romans 15.1, so we which are strong, we which understand the doctrine, the doctrines of God's word, we which understand our liberties in Christ, we which understand certain things to be okay that others might believe are wrong, you, you don't go to them and beat them over the head with the Bible and say, well, you just don't understand. You just don't understand your liberty in Christ. No, you bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please yourself. Grace is a freedom from debt, a freedom from the debt of the law, but an obligation to the life of the brethren. And I wonder, if we were to be honest within ourselves, how many of us are spiritually selfish? How many times we have noticed a spiritual need of someone in our midst And rather than, say, invite them over and seek to counsel them in the way that they should go, we just looked at them and thought, I wonder when he'll figure out what the Bible actually says and do it. Right? Well, if you see it, then why why aren't you walking alongside of him and helping him? Well, because it would take too much of my time. Because your evenings are so important that you can't be bothered to help a brother and sister in Christ. Your days off are yours. Your time is your own. You have a routine. You won't be bothered to to bear the infirmities of the weak. You're too busy pleasing yourself. But you know as well as I do that the pleasure found in serving the Lord far outweighs the pleasure found in our own selfish priorities. And the reward for doing it God's way far outweighs the rewards of our own way. It would be like a man walking down the road oblivious to all things, and you say, doesn't he know there's a car coming? Well, I hope he figures it out. 
instead of yelling at him, hey, there's a car coming. Instead of coming alongside of him and pulling, oh, I'm not going to be inconvenienced to stop what I'm doing to, to tell him that a car is coming. He'll figure it out. I hope he figures it out because there's a car coming. Or would you get in the road and pull him out? Pull him out of the way. Or at least say, hey, there's a car coming. But how often do we see a brother or sister in spiritual need and instead of just taking them aside and saying, hey, look, this is what the Bible says. Can I help you? We just say, oh, hope he figures out what the Bible says. How can they hear without a preacher? Who will tell them if not you? Paul continues in verse 3, For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. Now this command is couched in a larger command that we would restore one overtaken in a fault and that we would restore him with a spirit of meekness. We'll come back to this more clearly um, and we do come back to this more clearly as we see verse 3. If a man thinketh himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. The idea here is that our compulsion to come alongside the weak and to lift them up to bear their burdens ought to be driven not only by a love for God, but by the reality that you, like any man, are just a sinner saved by grace. I was talking to a man this week in the jail, um, and he, he got saved this week. And he's a, he's a black man, and he has um, done several you know, things in his life that he's not proud of. And as he was talking about this church and asking about the possibility of coming into this church, the first thing he said is, are you guys going to have a problem with a black man in your church? And, and oh, no, absolutely not. We, we have some already, and we're very happy to have them. And, and I told him how in, in the book of Acts, we find that the Bible tells us that we are all one blood, that there's only one race, the human race, that the color of our skin has absolutely nothing to do with anything. Um, it just happens to be the color that our skin is. And so I explained that to him. But then he said, are you all going to be judging me because of the things I've done in my past? And I told him, I said, you know what? I'm a sinner saved by grace. You're a sinner saved by grace. That means we're on a level playing field. I was a sinner. I am a sinner, but I was, I was lost in my sin. I was dead in my sin. And God redeemed me from myself. You are lost in your sin. You are dead in your sin. And God has redeemed you from yourself. What is there to judge? You're a sinner saved by grace. I'm a sinner saved by grace. And that is what Paul is saying here. When we have a proper perspective, we understand that the only difference between the worst sinner and the godliest man is the grace of God working on his behalf. There is nothing in ourselves that has made us what we are, only what God has been willing to do for us as we have exercised obedience unto him. We spoke in the context of verse 2 of the motivation we might have for not bearing the burdens of others. By implication, Paul seems to indicate that one of the primary reasons we might have for failing to bear the burdens of others is judgmentalism, thinking that they deserve what they get for their poor choices and allowing them to suffer the consequences. So we might say something to the effect of, hey, you made the wrong decision, I made the right decision, so why don't you just wallow in spiritual insecurity and infancy for a little bit just to realize what you've done to me, just to realize what you've done to this church, just for a little bit of added prick. But aren't you glad God didn't act that way toward us? Aren't you glad that God reached out in love and compassion to lost sinners and called them in loving patience unto himself? 
Aren't you glad that if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you for your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness? Aren't you glad that there's not a waiting period where you sin and you call unto God and you say, God, will you forgive me? And he says, tell you what, you were, that was a pretty bad one this time and you've done that a couple of times before. So how about you wallow in unforgiveness for, for 20 or 30 minutes or for a day or two and then, then we'll talk about forgiveness. Aren't you glad God didn't do that to you? That he doesn't do that to you? And what is it that stops us from extending to our brothers and sisters in Christ the same love and compassion and sacrifice that God the Father extended unto us in Christ? The only thing standing between us is self. Personal priorities, personal vindication, the flesh. And when we allow ourselves to think that we are something more than what we are, Paul says we deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves when we think that we're something, when in fact all we are are sinners saved by grace. So then Paul says in verse 4, But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. Do you need something to glory in, Paul asks? Do you need something to feel good about? If you can't feel good about... about these people and what they've done. Don't feel good that you're better than some other Christian, he says. You're the same as them. You're a sinner saved by grace. If you want to rejoice in something, rejoice in the extent to which God's grace has been shown upon you through obedience. Not to the extent that you have obeyed more than someone else, but to the extent that you have obeyed compared to God's expectations. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, the Bible says, I beseech ye therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. This verse tells us that our reasonable service, that that which doesn't go any farther than the call of duty, it doesn't go any any farther beyond and it's not anything extra special to God it's not being a choice servant of God he says the very least the reasonable service of every believer is that your body is presented unto God as a living sacrifice that you have yielded yourself wholly to God that's the baseline that's the reasonable service the very least that we can do for God because of what he has done for us And Paul says in verse 4, if you want to rejoice in something, rejoice in the degree to which you have responded in obedience to the word of God and the amazing grace which God has abounded on your behalf because of it. Don't compare your perceived righteousness to another man's perceived righteousness. Don't rejoice in the fact that, wow, okay, he just lost his family because of his wrong choices and he just lost his job or or, um, he, he finally figured out he was in false doctrine. I'm glad I'm not him. Don't rejoice in his failures. Don't rejoice in his weakness. Rejoice in the reality that God has abounded in grace toward you. Rejoice that as you look at the scriptures, you can say, well, praise the Lord. My name is written in the book of life. And praise the Lord, I have the privilege of serving, serving God. Praise the Lord that, that I have been protected thus far from spiritual error myself. Praise the Lord that somebody disciple me early enough that I didn't have to make these mistakes. Praise the Lord that, that 
I have, I have never fallen into error because I know I could. Paul says, if you want to rejoice, rejoice in that. Don't compare our perceived righteousness. Don't have your level of happiness or contentment in your Christian life based upon the perception that you're a better Christian than some other Christian. And why? Well, Paul tells us in verse 5, For every man shall bear his own burden. On the day that you stand before the Lord and you are judged... The Bible says you will be judged according to your works. 1 Corinthians 3.13 tells us and 2 Corinthians 5.10 tell us that we will be judged according to our works. You will not be judged on a sliding scale. You will not be graded on a curve based upon how other people you know did. You will be judged against the word of God. This is the standard that each of us will be judged by. You say, Pastor, what do you mean we'll be judged by our works? Not into salvation. Right? That's Jesus Christ. We'll be judged unto salvation by the precious blood of Christ and, and be found innocent. Not guilty. But we will stand before judgment for the things we have done in this life, whether they be good or whether they be evil. 1 Corinthians 3.13, 2 Corinthians 5.10. And you will not be judged against how you compared to Pastor Wickler. You will not be judged how you compared to one another. You won't be able to look over at the person next to you and say, well, I did better than him, so I'm okay, right, God? As long as I can find someone that I did better than, I'm okay, right, God? God's going to take your works, and He is going to put it on the scale. And He is going to take the Word of God, and He is going to put it on the scale. And He's going to judge it. And for you to stand next to the measuring stick of a man who has faltered in his faith and judge yourself against him and feel like you're doing pretty well is nothing more than spiritual self-deception. Compare yourself against the Bible and see how you measure up. Then compare yourself to the task that God has called you unto and see how you measure up. Because each of us has been given our own service to the Lord, and we are not judged against the service of another. We are judged against our own service. Your pastor has been called unto full-time ministry. I will be judged against the Word of God and against my calling. This is the calling the Lord has given to me. I will be judged against the Word of God. I will stand before God and I will answer for how well I obeyed the Word of God and accomplished the calling He has given to me. You will not be judged against the calling of a pastor. You're not a pastor. You will not stand before God and God will say, well, Pastor Wickler devoted X number of hours a week to the study of the Word of God and you only devoted half of that, a third of that. Well, yeah. Pastor Wickler does that all week. That's what he's called to do. You have lives outside of the ministry. You're not going to be judged against my calling. You're going to be judged against what God has called you to do. You will not be judged based upon whether you or not you ministered as I did, or whether or not you read the Bible and prayed as much as I did, or whether or not you won as many souls to Christ as I or anyone else. God has a desire for your life. He has a calling upon your life. He has called you. He has given you a job. He has given you a family. He has given you friends. 
and you will be judged not on whether or not you accomplish the tasks God has given to me or to your neighbor. God will judge you based upon whether or not you have accomplished the tasks that he has given to you. And on the day we stand in judgment, our truck driver and our faithful mothers might be found more honorable in the sight of God with relation to your spiritual faithfulness to the tasks God has given to you than your pastor will with relation to the spiritual tasks that God has given to me. Realize that? That our faithful Christians in this room might be reckoned more faithful according to how God has called you than I will be according to how God has called me. We're not judged on a sliding scale. We're judged against the word of God and against the calling of God on our lives. Imagine a family where dad calls his two children into the room. He's given one child the responsibility of washing the table every day and the other child has been given the responsibility of washing the dishes after every meal. And imagine that the father looks at the child who washes the table and says, well, your sister is a better child than you because she washes dishes after every meal and you only wash the table after every day. Your sister is a better child than you because she washes them regularly after every meal. And you only do it once a day. Now how wrong would that be for a father? That he gives two children different tasks. He says, you wash the table every day. You wash the dishes after every meal. She does a good job at washing her dishes after every meal. She does or he does whatever. They do a good job at washing the table. They both do a great job, but the father says, well, this one's better because... You're not measuring up to the task I gave to the other one. That's silly. A father wouldn't do that. It's unjust. A just father calls each child and assesses that child's obedience based upon what that child was told to do. What that child was asked to do. If he told one child to wash the table every day, then he should judge that child not against the child that's washing dishes after every meal. He should judge that child against the standard that he set and the tasks that he assigned to that child. And this is how God works. He will not judge you against Pastor Wickler. He won't judge you against Paul. He won't judge you against Peter. We're thankful for that because those guys would ruin the curve. He will judge you against what he has called you to do and how you obeyed the word of God. Well, Pastor, then why would anyone want more spiritual responsibility? If I am going to be judged against God's expectations for me, then I want as little responsibility as possible, right? Low expectations, low judgment. Wrong. Because to whom much has been given, much is required. But the Bible also tells us that he who is faithful in much is rewarded much. I have this evening given you application throughout the message, but let me say a few words in closing that bring all of these concepts together. When we talk about the concept of standing fast in our liberty, as we did at the beginning of Galatians chapter 5, we think almost entirely in a defensive posture. 
The idea of standing fast defensively, that we're holding the fort against those who would seek to cripple our freedom in Christ through legalistic false doctrine. That I'm going to stand in the day that somebody would seek to, to, to bring about a legalistic false doctrine in our church or, or in my life. That we need to tirelessly defend the gospel of Jesus Christ against ceaseless onslaughts of false gospels that would seek to impose some level of works into the message. And it's true. It's true. We need that. We need to fight for sound doctrine. But as we consider this evening's message, we find that your liberty in Christ is only half realized by defending against legalism or license. Your, your liberty in Christ is not just something that must be defended. It must also be lived. Right? You've got to live it. You've got to exercise it. You've got to assume the freedom and the liberty that it gives you and live within it. And this evening we've learned how we are supposed to assert our liberty in Christ. How to live in that liberty. Not just to stand in that liberty by saying no, no, no to all the, all the doctrinal errors. How do we live in the liberty? And this is the part that we, in our circles, can really get wrong. If we haven't fallen into legalistic false doctrine... The next question is, are we living in the freedom that we have? And how do we live in that freedom? We serve. We love. See, for most Christians, especially those in conservative circles such as ours, asserting our liberty is often considered in the context of doing things. When we hear about people that are asserting their liberty in Christ, it's a pretty negative thing, right? doing things that their parents or pastors wouldn't let them do. So we have a generation of Christians today that are going out and doing things that have characteristically been found uh, by the church to be wrong as an attempt to assert their liberty in Christ. So they go out and they get tattoos and they watch movies that they could never watch and they do the things that they could never do and they wear the things they could never wear and that's asserting their liberty in Christ, right? And to most Christians... That's the idea of asserting liberty. But what do we find in Galatians 5 and 6 when we, when, when we talk about the idea of living in the liberty that we have? When we look at Romans chapter 14 and we learn about li- our liberty in Christ, what do we find? We find that the liberty that we have in Christ is not meant to be indulging. It's not meant for us to be able to be, feel free to indulge. It's meant to free us to serve. That the most genuine way that we can live out the liberty that we have in Christ is not when we finally realize that certain actions which the church looked upon as lacking virtue are in fact not sin in and of themselves and gleefully do them and flirt with those lines of danger and of sin. The most genuine way that we can live in our liberty is when you give up your day off to counsel a brother in Christ who is struggling with sin. The most genuine assertion of your liberty in Christ is when you pour yourself into discipleship of other believers at the expense of yourself. The most genuine assertion of your liberty in Christ is when you are serving one another in love. And when you are there, when your days and your hours are filled with selfless exhibitions of spirit-filled love, then you are living in the fullness of your liberty in Christ. So how are we doing this evening? 
For some here, you are on the other end of the spectrum. You have been taken in a fault and you're in need of spiritual restoration. I pray to God that you will find it among these believers. For others, maybe you've been thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Maybe you've been comparing yourself against the perceived godliness of others in order to feel good about yourself or you're actively comparing yourself to others' actions as opposed to comparing yourself to God's standard. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 12. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. 2 Corinthians 10.12 If you think that you're doing okay simply because you look around and cannot find many people that are better than you based upon your moral reckoning, then you have a spiritual problem. Likewise, if you think that you are failing in your spiritual life simply because you look around and perceive people that are doing better than you by whatever standard you reckon that, this is also a spiritual problem. God has asked you to live a different life than anyone else in this room. We are united by the common faith and the necessity of the obedience of the word of God. Because we have unity in the spirit, we will all find ourselves in a similar general place. That's true. Each person is obligated to obey authorities, to love their neighbor, to pursue righteousness. And yet, each one of you has been given a different task to fulfill, complete with unique gifts in order to fulfill that task under the purview of a local church. And God will judge you by that standard and no one else's. For others, let me ask you, are you living in the freedom that you have in Christ to serve one another in love? When is the last time you gave yourself you gave anything of yourself to spiritually encourage or bless another. I, I know with many of us it was recently. Praise the Lord for that. When is the last time you pinpointed a believer who could use some spiritual counsel and instead of just saying, man, I hope they figure it out, you rose to the opportunity to open the Bible and guide them into that truth. We have a church of men and women who are on a journey into Christ's likeness and none of us has, any, has come anywhere close to arriving. But we all have different gifts. And we all have different knowledge. And we all have different experiences. We have a community of men and women surrounding us. Many of whom are living in the darkness of the lies that they have heard their whole lives. About the Bible and about the gospel. Are you living in the freedom which has been bought for you? Not enabling you to go out and flirt with the lines of sin but enabling you to reach these men and women in unique ways and according to their needs. Is that how you see your liberty in Christ? Or is your liberty just an excuse for spiritual self-centeredness or laziness? Because at the end of the day, every man shall bear his own burden, Paul said. You don't need to justify yourself to this church. You don't need to justify yourself to your family or to your pastor. But one day you will stand before God and you'll be judged. You either obeyed or you didn't. So how are we doing this evening? Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the liberty we have in Christ.
I pray that you would help us as a church to orient our minds around the reality that the liberty we have is not intended to be to pursue sin or lust or license. The liberty that we have is most freely found and operated within when we're serving and loving one another. I pray for this church, for these dear men and women in Christ, that they would assume a mindset of love and of service, of deep love one for another. That this would be a body that is willing to spend and be spent for the sake of our brothers and sisters, not just physically but spiritually. Pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us into the truth of God's Word as it relates to this passage of Scripture. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.